Well, hello and welcome to the extras. My name is Sam. And I'm Jack. And it is good to be with you this afternoon. Well, today, whenever you're listening, uh, we're doing it this afternoon That's as right. uh, we, we jump into Jack. This is, I think, the, the biggest number of questions I think I've ever seen on an episode of the extras. Well done, sir. Well, yeah. I mean, <laughs> we, we had we have 38 questions that have come in this week, which yeah. is absolutely smashed previous yeah. records. That, which, that re- it really has. Yeah, yeah. I mean, for me, that means basically two possibilities. One, I made zero sense at all. Everyone's <laughs> just saying, what's going on? Or two, a lot of people are thinking super hard about what God's saying in this yeah. part of the Bible and really want to learn more. I hope it's the second. Yeah, 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 yeah <laughs> indeed, indeed. Mate, um, yeah, so lots of questions, but uh, we were in Matthew 12 on the weekend um, thinking about a huge chunk of scripture. Um, but before we actually get to our questions, just mm. give us a quick recap. What was Matthew 12, uh, the second half, all on about? Yeah, so it starts with Jesus casts out this demon and suddenly there's this controversy. The people think, oh, look, the son of David, the Messiah is here. Mm-hmm. Whereas Jesus' enemies, the Pharisees say, no, it's only by the prince of demons that this guy can drive out demons. Yeah, yep. So then we have this big response from Jesus where he says on the first point, no, mm-hmm. I'm driving out demons by the spirit of God. So now the kingdom of heaven is upon you and yep. Jesus is triumphing over Satan. And he has this line about the the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, this thing that will not be forgiven for those who respond to Jesus with this particular way. And we'll, we'll get to that. Got a few questions on that just, one? Just one or two. Yeah. Yeah, right. yeah. yeah. And Jesus calls us all to think about what is it that our words, what we speak, what does that reveal about our heart and how we're responding to yeah. Jesus? Yeah. Okay. Nice. Nice. And yeah, all in the context of, of Jesus's huge work by the Spirit um, and, and a rejection of him and that sort of calls um, into, into focus, I guess, this question of where you're standing with rejecting or accepting Jesus. Yeah. Are yep. you with me or against me? That's the question he leaves us Th- with. That's the big question. Mm. That's right. Okay. Um, well, let, let's dive in. We've got, uh, we, 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 even though there are 38 questions, we've tried to, t- to group them. And hopefully if you've asked a question, we don't read your specific wording out. We, we've tried to sort of capture them up under a few headings that sort of capture the main themes of the questions that have come in this week. So Yeah, that's right. We'd love to get to everything eventually, you know, as in specifically, but we'd be here all day. That's so it. And, for your and sake and ours, we'll 100%. summarize a little. <laughs> that's right. And so if you feel like we haven't quite got the, the nuance of your particular question, um, I'm speaking for Jackie, but I'm sure he would love it if you came and had a chat to him about that. Uh, but for now, let, would, let, yeah, let, let, let's <laughs> let's get in. So, um, verse twenty-seven. Um, mm. There's some a uh, couple of questions about. Um, Jesus seems to imply that the Pharisees themselves have been driving out demons, and someone's asking a couple of people asking about this. Uh, can, can you elaborate on that idea? Uh, what is the deal with the Pharisees driving out demons? Is that mentioned elsewhere in the Bible? And where do they get the power to do that? Yeah, great question. I mean, Jesus almost glides past it, and we're kind of like, hang on a second. You're mm-hmm. saying not just Jesus drove out demons, but other people did as well. I think there, yeah, there's at least one other place where you see something similar in the New Testament. In Acts chapter 19, when Paul is in Ephesus, verse 13, there are some other Jews who went around driving out evil spirits. And yes. there's this little interaction where some of the Jewish exorcists try to drive out demons mm. by Jesus and the spirit, you know, the evil spirit says, no, you know, I know Jesus, I know Paul, I don't know you guys. Yeah, anyway, yeah. Anyway, so yeah, there's another place where you see this kind of thing happen. Yep. And so the question is, well, you know, we often talk about Jesus' miracles show that he's the spirit-empowered son of God, but... What about the Pharisees? Because yeah. that's not who they were. What yes. were they doing? Yeah. Where do they? I mean, where do they get the power? I take it in the end, it's from God. He is the one who who can cast out demons. I take it that the the Jewish people, the Pharisees, who were involved in this kind of ministry, were, in some sense, relying on God and asking mm. Him to free this person in front of them from yep. the power of demonic possession. And God says, "Yes, I will yes. do that, and I will drive out the demon from you." So I don't think it necessarily tells us that there was anything 
super significant or spiritual about those Pharisees, it again points back to the gotcha. power of the God who empowers them. Yeah, nice. Yeah, that, that exorcism is ultimately done by God's power, not yeah. by any, any other power. That's right. So Jesus, is, he's not unique in that he casts out demons, but there's something about the the way that he does it in his own power and, you know, yeah. in, in his authority, that yes. kind of thing is yeah. unique. As God himself. Yeah. Yeah, nice. Okay, um, so so moving on from verse 27 into verse 28, um, uh, if Jesus is God himself, as we were just talking about, why then does he need the power of the Holy Spirit to, to come upon him? Uh, and that's certainly the language that the, the, the four Gospels give us, you know, that the Spirit does come on Jesus and there's something that each gospel writer seems to say that is significant about that. Why does Jesus need the Spirit? Yeah, really good question. I love that someone thinking through this. A few things to say. I think the first is what you see in the gospels is this, not just this work of Jesus, but it's this work of the triune God. I think the gospel writers show us Father, Son, and Spirit working together. Mm. Even in verse like 28, you know, it is by the Spirit of God that Jesus drives out demons. So the kingdom of God has come upon you. You see there that, Father, Son, and Spirit working together to, to bring the kingdom in. Yeah, The fact that Jesus is anointed by the Spirit, I mean, that tells us a few things. First is it, it puts him in continuity with the Old Testament. You see in the Old Testament how God's Spirit rushed on first the judges and then the kings, those people who were the leaders of God's people. Yes, The Holy Spirit signified them in, in that kind of way. And Jesus yes. comes saying, yeah, he's the next in yes. that yep. line. And he's the capstone of that line of yep. Spirit-empowered kings. Mm. It also tells you something about Jesus's humanity. He's the the man who is the kind of perfect embodiment of what it means to be man. And, mm. you know, I think that we were talking about this a bit earlier, weren't we, with the, yeah. the, the spirit of God, yeah, even at the beginning in Genesis? Yeah, I mean, a Adam was the first spirit-empowered man, the breath of God mm. into his lungs, and, and then he... he was made to, to rule over God's world. Um, that, that didn't all go so well for, for Adam. Yeah. He, he rebelled against God. But Jesus, I think, by being the, the sort of the, the perfect final spirit-empowered man, mm. um, shows us how humanity should have been. And, and actually, it's remarkable the kind of authority that Jesus has over creation. It, it's, it's perhaps hinting at actually how humanity was intended to be, but is not because of our, um, our, our fall. Yeah. yeah. Maybe the last thing to say, just, I think this shows us just another reason why the spirit's so important. Like mm. sometimes I think, in our kind of tribe, the significance of the Holy Spirit can sometimes be lost on us because we just think, you know, Jesus is the yes. where it's all at. But here we see that, you know, Jesus and the Spirit, they're, they're both united together in this work. Yeah. yeah. There's a few thoughts there. Yeah, fantastic. Okay. Um, well, on the other side of the ledger, I guess, uh, from Jesus and, and God's Holy Spirit, there's a few questions about Satan um, mm. who, who uh, the Pharisees are sort of attributing Jesus' work to. Um, and a couple of questions about, how, how do we think about Satan? And I think one that sort of captures up, I guess, the heart of a few of the questions here is how much power should we attribute to Satan? Um, how much does he influence our thinking, our actions? Um, how much kind of influence does he really have? And and I guess kind of tied up with that, even in today's world, because there's a few questions capturing up. Look, maybe in the past, in Jesus' time, there's lots of demonic activity. It all seems to have quietened down on that front nowadays. Mm. Is, is the devil even there still? Th that kind of question. How, how do we think about all that? Yeah, the stack's in there. I mean, one qu one thing we were talking about before again is, you know, for us when we struggle with our sin, and in the talk I use the language of, you know, when the devil attacks and, mm. you know, we're there doubting, you know, you know, have these thoughts, I'm just so sinful now, there's no possibility of God ever loving me again, that kind of thing. Yep. Does that thought come from me or from the devil? Yeah. You know, maybe that's a way of thinking about yeah. it. Yeah. And I wonder, you know, how, I mean, firstly, how 
significant is it to press that distinction? Yeah. You know, that, that is a thought that comes from my heart, but it, you know, it could be a thought that's kind of coaxed forward by or like goaded forward by the devil. Is it, mm. is the devil whispering in my ear or is it something that just springs up within my heart? I'd, I don't know if we can always know that. Uh, I mean, what we can know, I think, is that the, the, the traditional way we put it is the, the unholy trinity of things that yes. we struggle against in, in as, as sinners is the world, the flesh, and the devil. Mm. The world outside us, the flesh within, and Satan who speaks to us in our flesh. Yes. And Satan works through, you know, bringing out and inflaming and directing my evil desires towards the things I shouldn't desire. And yet those are the desires that are within me. That's right. And, and I guess uh, perhaps even taking it outside of ourselves for a minute, mm. I, I guess in the same way that we, we talk about you know, in that triad you mentioned, there's the world. Um, often you can see worldliness and, and things out, out in the culture that, that seem to be just rampantly in opposition to God. Is that because of individuals in opposition to God or is that because Satan is, is sort of working, coaxing through the culture um, I, I think it's both end yeah. and, and, and I'm not sure like you said exactly how much we need to be able to sort of say that bit is demonic and that bit is just that person uh, I, I think it's it's all, like they, they, there's a, they, they are working um, t- in tandem I guess uh, and I think probably the same is true in us uh, mm. that, that the devil will sometimes work on our fleshliness our, our, uh, our, our sinfulness and try and coax like that's a good word things out of us um, can you always perceive his his hand in things um i'm not sure sometimes i think it is clear other times perhaps not so clear Mm. yeah another thing that maybe is helpful one of the things that the bible says satan does do for sure is it it says he is the accuser yeah there's this line in revelation 12 which is talking about god's triumph over the devil but it says the accuser of our brothers and sisters who accuses them before our god day and night has been hurled down and one of the things that Satan does is he throws these accusations at us. Like, you know, like I mentioned, he, yeah. you know, he whispers to us and says, that thing you've done, you, you're, you're stuffed, you know. Yeah. You should despair now because there's no possibility of forgiveness or anything. Yeah. Satan's accusations are one of the, the yep. things that he throws at us. And so I guess the, the, the question that then comes on from that is, well, what do I do if, uh, if I feel like the evil one is accusing me? Um, and, uh, and Revelation 12, I think, is really helpful. They, 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 Satan is, is thrown down by the, the people of God. They, they triumph over him um, by the blood of the Lamb. Mm. And so it is going not to ourselves and saying, go away, Satan, <laughs> but going to, to the finished work of Christ and going, no, I can't be accused. I am sinful. That is true. But I, I can't be accused before God. Um, and held guilty because the blood of Christ has already paid for my sins and so therefore I am free and right with God and yeah things are well with my soul that's right yeah Satan when Satan tells you you're a sinner mm. like that that part of it is true that's a, yeah that's, that's right we're, we're not <laughs> we're no t- two minds about that that is true exactly yeah the lie you know he is the father of lies the lie in it is saying that you are therefore now condemned that's like, right you're not you okay with God exactly yeah but you're in Christ if you're in Christ there is no condemnation that's yeah, right remember the words of yeah. Romans 8 we saw last term mm. you know that passage finishes yep. if God's for us who can be against us who will bring any charge against God's elect yeah that's right that's not right. even Satan will yeah so so um, that that's sort of uh, temptation side of um, Satan Let, let's yeah. go just demons more generally um, yeah why does it seem that uh, you know when Jesus is walking around there's just a demon on every corner um, every way he turns, there's there's a demon waiting for him. Yeah. Uh, we sometimes, I think, here in our in our um, kind of modern lives, feel like, well, that that sounds pretty exciting. That does. My life seems a bit more mundane than that. That's right. Yeah. Do demons do anything at all today? Yeah. 
Yeah, I think one thing that's important to say is the work of Satan in this world is not limited to just the really spectacular dramatic things like demon possession. Sure. And I think of the first two chapters of Job where you see the authority that God hands over to Satan to torment Job. The things that happen there are, you know, a bunch of raiders come off from the distance and come to Job's land and, you know, carry off his sheep or something. And the house collapses and kills his children. Like the things that happen are just... They're calamities from yeah. a human level. They just look like disasters. Yep. And yet Job shows you that those things are... Have come from the hand of the evil one. Yeah. They're, they're the things that Satan has thrown at, at yeah. the God's man at that point. Yep. So I take it today, some of the disasters that happen around us, I think, are the work of the yep. devil. Even yep. things that we would just attribute and say, oh, you know, that's just, you know, that was bad luck. You know, in some instances, I think that's the work of the devil trying to hound God's people. Yep. I mean, that still raises, the, yeah, you know, that doesn't answer the question entirely, does it? Do the, yeah. Does the more supernatural kind of stuff still happen today? Yeah. And I wonder if there's probably two answers here mm. in that on the one level, like obviously when Jesus is walking the earth, it's a moment of confrontation with the devil that's just around the corner at the cross. Yeah. Uh, and so there is a heightenedness to the, to the, um, the demonic activity. I think that's probably mm. fair to say in yeah. the, in the time of the new Testament. Um, you know, if you're, if you're the, you're the enemy, you see God take human form and come on the earth. You you know that now's your moment to, you know, fire all your best shots. Yeah, yeah, that's um, right. But I don't think that means that he's necessarily finished play in the world at this point. As yeah. you know, you mentioned it on Sunday you know, um, that you know the the enemy prowls around like a roaring lion looking mm-hmm. for someone to devour. That's not a he used to do that and he stopped. Yeah, that's present tense. Yeah, that's now. That's right. Yeah. So I think that's certainly right. And you see, even across the Bible, the times where there are these more spectacular bursts of miracles. It's not a uniform thing across the scriptures. It's it's particular moments in the, the yes. coming of the kingdom of God. Yeah. Yes. I mean, the other thing to say is that I think thinking about today, uh, on the a line that you used before, Sam, we were talking, I think it's helpful that the devil is a pragmatist. Yes. As Satan thinks about how he's trying to accuse God's people and bring havoc in the world. Satan's crafty. Mm-hmm. Uh, he doesn't work the same way in every culture. I think he, he, he's been around a while and he's worked out how to cause kind of maximum havoc in different cultures. That's right. And his goal is that people don't trust in God and his promises through Christ, and he will do whatever works. And so in a fear-based culture, he'll manifest in very tangible ways to keep you in fear so that you keep on worshipping your your idols such that you don't turn to Christ because you're yeah. scared to. But in a uh, non-fear-based culture, perhaps more material-based culture, he'll work through material things so that you keep on trusting in your idols and don't trust in Jesus and turn to him. Uh, it's, it's the same goal uh, executed through pragmatic means. That's right, yeah. Seems like one of the best things Satan can do in the modern sceptical, supposedly enlightened West is to mm. kind of go incognito and yeah. play a pretty closed hand. That seems to be one of the best things he can do to yep. exert his authority in turning people away from Jesus. And my... Um, interactions with those who are serving God on the mission field in, in other cultures, um, you know, th- they will mention to you quite, quite um, you know, matter of factly, look, it's different in other parts of the world. And, mm. uh, but it doesn't mean that Satan is not at work in Sydney just because we're in a materialistic culture yeah. uh, where Satan is working to keep you from Christ through your idols that are just different. Yeah, I think that's right. Yeah. Okay. Now, we hit blasphemy against the Spirit. Verses 31 and 32 raise this whole um, section for us. Why don't I just read those verses and then we'll see if we can get into some of these questions. Yeah, thank you. um, uh, Jesus has just said in verse 30 that if you're not with him, you're against him. 
And then he says, 31, So I tell you, every kind of sin and slander can be forgiven, but blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. That's the big claim. And then 32, Anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but anyone who speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. So they're the verses that we're dealing with. Um, yeah. We've got a good, oh, I don't know, 12, 13 questions <laughs> on on this. Yeah. Um, so let's see if we can sort of pick the eyes out of some of them. Um you used the term unforgivable sin uh, yeah. on Sunday. Someone's uh, questioning about that. Doesn't the term unforgivable infer that God's power to forgive is incomplete? Let's start with that one. Mm. Yeah, I think this is a really good pickup. And to be honest, if I had my time again preaching, I think I would not use the word unforgivable for mm. what Jesus is describing in this passage. Okay. I picked that up because like, that's the, that's one of the common phrases that people for a long time have used as they come to this passage. But yes, yes. a few interactions I had with some of you over Sunday, I think have helped me say that there's, there's issues with that word. Uh, yeah. I think this question captures it well, that saying it's an unforgivable sin. I mean, what I meant by that was saying that Jesus here expresses something that there's no possibility that would be that it would be forgiven. You know, in which is what he says, right? Exactly. Yeah, it will not be forgiven. It so that, will that's not all be forgiven. Meant. Yes. Yeah. Yep. But I accept that the word unforgivable in English, when we hear that, that sounds like it's a there's a, a capability issue here. Like it's not. It's, it's like God's not capable of forgiving this thing. Like it almost puts it back on the Godward side. Yes. The issue here. Yeah. And that's not what I think the passage is getting at. Yes. I think what the passage is saying, you know, this this is not something. It's not that I won't be forgiven. Because God is, you know, somehow hard and this is the thing where he draws the line and he won't forgive. The reason it won't be forgiven is because these people are so hardened to God that there is no possibility that they would repent gotcha. and find the forgiveness in Christ, which is there if they would yeah. ask for it. So I guess the, the second part of this question here, maybe this is helpful to ask at this point. What, mm. what is the significance of the phrasing will not be forgiven rather than cannot be forgiven? Is that sort of, is that sort of what you're talking about here? That if we talk about what cannot be forgiven, as if it, it's like as if something too big for God to do. Yeah. That's just too much. God couldn't do that. Whereas will not be forgiven is actually maybe making a comment about the fact that they won't, won't be coming for forgiveness and that thus they won't be forgiven. Is that, is that kind of the idea here? I think as you see the passage in context, I think that's what is happening. Yeah, you mm. have the, the Pharisees who have uh, expressed this deliberate, willful rejection of the king who the Holy Spirit has authenticated Jesus to be. And it seems like Jesus is saying that kind of rejection, that blasphemy will never be forgiven. Mm. Not because, you know, if someone believes something incorrect about Jesus and even maligns him, if someone, you know, if, if, if you do that, if, if I do that, we can turn to Christ and ask to be forgiven, forgiven for that. And yep. the forgiveness for that is there. But what's happening in this passage is something that is, is so, so hard and so stubborn that those people will not mm. turn and ask for forgiveness. And that is why they won't be forgiven. Yep. And I guess, so maybe it's helpful to say at this point that that's not something that we, like Jesus clearly has access to that kind of knowledge and he's speaking of it here. Um, Verse 25, he knew their thoughts. Yeah, that, that's right. Mm. Um, and yet we we don't share that part of Jesus's omniscience <laughs> or any of Jesus' <laughs> omniscience for that matter. Yeah, that's that, right. That we don't have that knowledge. Mm. Um, so how do, how do we think about that? Like we, without the full knowledge that Jesus has here, yeah, so as I've thought about this, I think seeing it from, like trying to see it from kind of the Godward perspective versus the human perspective, mm. I think clarifies it a little bit. So for us in our, in our human perspective, as we look at the other people around us, you know, like after a passage like this, it, you know, you, you can kind of see why you get the idea that, oh, like now I can look at other people and wonder like, oh, have they crossed the line? Like, have they done this thing, this, this thing that means they won't be forgiven? Yeah. I don't think that we will ever get to the point where we know that about someone else. Mm, yeah. If, 
And we'll get to this in a second with the example of Saul, yes, uh, yep. the one who, you know, persecuted Christians and yeah. opposed Jesus to that extent. Yeah. And even he could be forgiven. Like for us on the human level, there's always the possibility that yep. someone's unbelief can be overcome, can be overcome by the work of the Spirit and they can repent. What I think this is saying is that from the Godward perspective, you know, at the end of time, from the kind of God's eye view, when we look back on someone's life who rejects Jesus and finally ends up being condemned, yes, I think Jesus is saying, like, you'll be able to look back at that person's life and that for, for people like these Pharisees, there may be this moment where, for them, like, this was where the kind of line was drawn in the sand. Yeah. Like, humanly speaking, up to this point, they were still, you know, they hadn't made up their mind on Jesus. But from this moment on, they are so hardened against him. Yes. They will never come back. Yes. And that's a hardening, perhaps, that they've done themselves and that God has done to them. Is that? I think in the sovereignty of God, that, yeah. that's kind of an always, it's always a both yeah. end. I think yeah. that God sort of confirms them in their hardness and yeah. almost revokes the possibility that mm. they they would be coming back. And I can kind of see that. We didn't get to this on Sunday, but as the passage goes on, like the very next thing that happens in verse 38, some of the Pharisees and teachers of the law said to him, teacher, we want to see a sign from you, which just I find remarkable. After what Jesus just said, like Jesus just cast out this demon. He's just told them, you've rejected me in such a way that you're never coming back. And they say, <laughs> we'll prove it. Like, yeah, you know, show yeah, us yeah. a sign. Like, look at what Jesus just done. Like, yeah, yeah, they, they that's are right. so hard. And then Jesus says, yep. a wicked and adulterous sign asks, they ask for a sign, but none will be yeah. given it except the sign of Jonah. He said, like, he kind of con- confirms them in their, yes. their hardness and their unbelief. And we'll yeah. kind of get to that more in this coming week because we yeah. get to the parable of the sower. Indeed. Indeed we shall. Okay. Um, so uh, let, me, let me just ask a couple of these. We might have already covered them. If, mm. if a non-Christian does blaspheme against the Spirit, then later become a Christian, can that be forgiven? I think we've sort of covered that. in this. I think it's still clarifying to talk that through, yeah. yeah so, okay, go. Yeah. So, so if someone... Okay, so it, the question says, if a non-Christian does blaspheme against the Spirit, then later becomes a Christian, I think that's the problem. I think that's something that will never happen. That's right. For a non-Christian to blaspheme the Spirit means that they have entered this state of complete and utter rejection mm. from which there is no possibility that they would ever become a Christian. So this is something that wouldn't happen. If, if someone yes. rejects Jesus and later realizes they had it wrong and God mm. opens their eyes and they do embrace Christ, then they never blaspheme against the Spirit. Mm. Someone who blasphemes against the Spirit would never get to that point where they repent. Mm. That, I think that's what we're trying to kind of get okay. across. Yeah, yeah, that, that's helpful. Okay, um, now, so so, at what point is does the, and I think you're hinting at the answer already here, but at what point in life does the does this sin become unforgivable? Is it at the moment that you do it, or is it, or is it once you die that it finally has become in like that you've died while rejecting Jesus? Does, does that make sense? This is a really good question as well, and yeah, and again, I think it shows why the unforgivable language is unhelpful yes. and why next time I teach this passage I will avoid <laughs> it, which is a great thing for me to learn and I'm yeah, learning too. There you go. So the idea that, you know, is the, is the moment that the Pharisees have this conversation, is that when it becomes unforgivable? It's kind of the wrong question, I think. Yeah. Unforgiveness is like the default state. Like when we sin, there is now something that needs to be forgiven. Like, yes, yes you are now unforgiven because you have yes. wronged God and it's now kind of up to him to forgive you if, if, if it is his will. Yeah. So in a sense, like, yes, the moment they do this thing, it becomes unforgivable. Like that's always the case with sin. But the issue is with this sin, Jesus is saying it will never get to the point where these people repent from this and even ask for forgiveness. Mm. So in a sense, yeah, the permanence happens now. 
and we'll we'll ask going on from that point. But not because it's somehow this is you know the unforgivable thing. Like it's yes, it's it, they, they haven't been forgiven because they haven't asked for it and they never will. Yeah, that's right. This is confirmed that they never will. Yeah, I yeah, think that's right. Okay. Yeah, very helpful. All right. Now uh, there's more we can say there, but let, let's let's push <laughs> on more, for yeah. for, uh, for 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 time's <laughs> sake. Um, into some questions about the Son of Man, because in amongst this kind of comment. Uh, where he says, "If you blaspheme against the Spirit, you'll you'll not be forgiven." Mm. Um, yet he he seems to say that if you if you blaspheme against the Son of Man, against Jesus, that you can be forgiven. Why the distinction between why is it okay to blaspheme against Jesus but not the Spirit? Yeah, another massive question. Uh, I mean, one possible reading is Jesus saying the Holy Spirit is more important than he is. So yeah, if you wrong Jesus, you can be forgiven, but not the Holy Spirit because he's where it's really at. Yeah. I take it that's not what Jesus is saying. Okay. I just don't think that fits with the rest of what the yep. Bible reveals to us about the Holy Spirit and Jesus and yep. how they relate as, you know, equals in yep. God's yep. glory and everything. Yep. So it's not saying that. Again, I think it's reading it in context that helps us. When we see the the word Holy Spirit here, we're reading that against everything else that we've we've seen in Matthew about the Spirit. And I drew out a few of those things. It's you know Jesus is anointed with the Spirit at his, at his baptism. It's right now Jesus says he's driving out demons by the Spirit. It's it seems to be that the, the response to what the Holy Spirit has revealed about Jesus, to blaspheme that, I think that's the blasphemy against the mm. Holy Spirit. So it's not so much maligning the person of the Spirit versus the person of the yep. Son. Okay. It's maligning the Holy Spirit and what he has done in testifying to Jesus as the divine Son of God yeah. versus blasphemy against the Son of Man, which also needs to be unpacked. So okay. Son of Man, that's the title that Jesus uses to present himself to the world in the Gospels. Mm. And Son of Man in itself, it's quite a cryptic title. Yep. Like many of you listening will be familiar with that passage, Daniel chapter 7, yep. where this figure called the Son of Man presents himself to the Ancient of Days and the books are opened and he's there kind of as this exalted human being, like sitting yeah, on the throne, yeah. like that's a massive... Yes. Ma and, that, and that's important, like that's a big part of what Jesus is saying. Sure. But Son of Man is also this really generic phrase throughout the whole Old Testament, which just means a human being. So the prophet Ezekiel, again and again, God calls him son of man. And it just means like, you know, like a child of Adam. That's kind of the yep. sense, you know, in the yes. Narnia books, yes. right? Like yeah, that's right. A human being. Yep, yep. So when Jesus comes along and says, I'm the son of man, I think you're mostly hearing that as I'm a human being with this kind of weird exalted overtones of Daniel 7. Yep. But it yep. is a very cryptic title. Like yeah. Jesus doesn't turn up and say, I am the Messiah. Mm. He says, I'm the son of man. And I guess it is through the spirits testifying that he is God's anointed king. That, mm. that, and and that, is that part of the reason that, that Jesus is making the distinction here? I think that's right. So to blaspheme the son of man, I think, is to reject Jesus in the way he's presented himself in his ministry. Like if you rejected Jesus as he goes around Galilee and, you know, teachers and that kind of thing in a more naive sense, yep. that could be forgiven. But if you reject what God the Holy Spirit is mm. saying about the person of the Son by testifying to him through miracles and showing him to be the Messiah, yeah. that's a much weightier thing, yeah. which will not be forgiven. Okay. So again, like I think I gave the... It's um, rejecting Jesus, knowing full well who he is. Yeah. I think that's my summary of it. Yeah. Okay, okay. All right. Uh, what about Saul slash Paul? Um, you know, we, we, we're talking blasphemy against the Spirit. Um Paul seems pretty willful as one of the Pharisees mm. in rejection of Jesus, persecuting Christians, killing them, locking them up. Um, uh, it, it seems that he claimed that Jesus was not who he claimed to be, yeah. um, but yet he gets forgiven. How does that work? That's right, yeah. I mean, particularly given that Paul is a Pharisee, yes. you can see why that's relevant here. Yeah. Part of the answer is, I think, 
the Pharisees, like we hear Pharisees and we get used to thinking they're just like this, this big group who are, you know, just this whole band of characters who are all utterly opposed to Jesus. Mm. That's not quite right in the picture the New Testament presents. Like there, there were a lot of Pharisees and it seems like they're not all the same. You know, someone like Nicodemus is also a Pharisee, but he ends up turning to Jesus in John's gospel. Mm. So they're not a monolithic group. Yep. So when I say the Pharisees, you know, this passage isn't talking about all Pharisees, I think. You know, the, the particular little group of Pharisees who were there on the day with Jesus, I think they're the people who are in the firing line primarily. Yeah. But yep. still what you say is right. Like Saul opposed Jesus in some, some pretty serious ways. I mean, he was killing Christians and Jesus told him, you know, why are you persecuting me? Like yeah. he was really opposed to the work of Jesus. Yep. But the fact that Paul turned to Christ and became one of his followers, I think shows you that he didn't blaspheme against the spirit yep. in the sense that this passage in Matthew teaches us. Yeah. So I think that's clarifying as well. It's not just any opposition to Jesus. Like Jesus says, because blaspheming is the son of man will be forgiven. I yep. take it that in some way, Paul was ignorant as he persecuted Jesus yeah. by persecuting the church. And does, does he say something like that at some point? That kind of rings a bell. I'm not quite sure. But um, yeah, Jesus's ignorance and unbelief could be overcome because yep. he had not yet blasphemed the spirit to the yep. extent that we're talking about in Matthew 12. He does say, because I acted in ignorance. I'm just trying to think that where that is. Part mm. of me wants to say that that's when he... Does it in, in 1 Timothy 1, but I don't know. Yeah, I can't remember the top of my head. Anyway, yeah. Uh, okay, L- yeah, that, that's really helpful, mate. Thank you. Um, we'll push on, change gears a little bit here. Mm. One of the other points that you made on Sunday uh, was that that uh, you had this lovely little line that the lips are the window to the soul. Um, mm. Someone's asked a question, how, how does verse 34... Uh, work alongside Matthew 15, which says that uh, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. It seems like that their lips are not the window to the soul. Yeah, this is such a good pickup and someone clearly reading Matthew as a whole and, and yeah. pulling things together. Fantastic question. Yep. And I get what you mean. Yeah. These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. This seems to say there's a, a distinction and a, you know, a, a disjunction between the, the lips and the heart at that point. Yeah. So, I mean, these things are both true, so it's up to us to think through them and think about how they, you know, complement each other yep. rather than contradict each other. Yep. When you see the Matthew 15 uh, verse in context, so he's quoting Isaiah, there's this, you know, there's this way in which the people of Israel honoured God with their lips, you know, and I think back in the context there, it's, you know, they're giving kind of lip service to the law and going through the rote with the, um, the sacrificial system, sorry, going through the, what's the phrase I mean? Anyway, they... um. They're doing it, you know, doing it the outward form of it. Yeah, yeah. And yet their hearts are far from God. Yep. So the issue here is hypocrisy, I think. Mm. So their lips, you know, they're, they're kind of saying the right thing and yet they're at odds with it internally. Sure. Even for the, the, the fa- again, chapter 15 in Matthew, it's Pharisees again. Yep. And even here, there, there are other words that the Pharisees are saying that kind of expose the true condition of their hearts. So Jesus yeah. tells them, you know, um, this is where the Pharisees, they, they've been saying whatever might have been used to help the, you know, the money they should have been using to honour their father or mother is devoted to God. And so they don't honour their fa- father and mother. Yep. So there are things they're saying that show that their hearts are far from God. Mm. So even they are not consistent. Mm. And the fact that we have, you know, if your heart is far from God, you can at times say the right thing, but your life more broadly will testify to the fact that your heart is far from God. Yeah. 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 I hope that helps a little bit. Yeah, no, it does. That's, that's great. All right. Home straight. Uh, last two questions. Um, so on that theme of, of kind of what you say, you made some comments about um, uh, empty talk, kind of uh, chatter about meaningless stuff. Um, mm. People are just sort of wrestling with that a little bit. Um, 
you mentioned the example of chattering about you know a footy team or something like that. Yeah. Uh, someone's made the made the point. Look, my concern about this is that I find people who only want to talk about serious, deep things, painful to spend time with, and poor evangelists. And I think having a sense of humour and being able to engage in small talk is essential for getting to know people. Mm. Uh, I wonder if the passage is more about good slash evil intention rather than about the actual words. This is a really good comment. Yeah, I really appreciate this. And if I had another five, ten minutes with you on Sunday, I would have drilled into some of this as well. Yeah, I found it a really hard thing to give a quick example of this idea of empty talk because I think that the context of our words really matters. And I think you can say the same thing, you know, the same set of words in some instances um, may be empty and meaningless and in some instances may be good. Mm. So there's a, yeah, there's a, there's, a, there's a whole thing to think through there. Yep. So is small talk bad? No. Absolutely not. I mean, in some instances, like I think this this question really brings it out, right? Like sometimes yeah. small talk is a way of expressing love and concern for people in a sure. way that helps you get to know them, and yep. and that might ultimately help you lead to deeper things. But even even if it doesn't, you know, that's part of yes. warmth for another person. That's a good thing. Yeah, I guess Jesus' point here is that ultimately even it will be judged, such that like, yeah. that nothing, not even what you might consider just oh that was just a bit of chatter, it will come before God's judgment. So so be mindful about it. Exactly. It? Yeah. Yeah. And the point here is. It's, it's not that every word you say is bad, it's that every word you'll give an account for. That's right. So even the little things yeah. will be scrutinized. Yeah. But that doesn't necessarily mean they're all bad. Like even as he finishes in verse 37, by your words you will be acquitted and by your words you, you'll be condemned. Like yep. both those options are there. Yes. So it's not so much that, you know, you must only ever talk about serious, profound things. I agree. You know, someone like that <laughs> is, you know, may think they're ultimately being God-honoring and, and, and loving to people, but in practice may perha- maybe perhaps yeah. lack the kind of emotional intelligence to realize just how ultimately unloving they're being. Yes. Yep. Totally, yeah. Small talk, good thing. But every empty word, even the little things, we'll give an account to God for. That's the point. That, that's helpful. Okay, last one. Mm. Um, uh, this is more of a general comment. Uh, someone said, look, I often find it hard to understand what Jesus is saying in the Gospels. Um, and I find that the words of Jesus are sometimes pretty cryptic compared to Paul, etc. And it is hard to read and really bring into the heart what Jesus is saying. Am I the only one who finds this? How can I understand better, especially in my own quiet times? Are you the only one who finds this? No. Um, there's at least two of us because I'm, <laughs> I'm on board with you, I think. Yeah, I'd say a hearty amen. It is hard to understand what Jesus is saying in the Gospels. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, just, just personally, I think I, I rested with the text for this talk more than I have in living memory, I think. Like, this is a hard passage. Yeah. And I certainly don't have all the answers. It's interesting that, yeah, I think we sometimes have the idea that the Gospels are the easy part of the Bible, but my experience, at least working through them in detail and, and teaching them, is the things that Jesus says often are, man, they are, yeah. even if they are clear, they are hard-hitting and For sure. like really challenging, and often they're quite cryptic. And again, we'll get to this more on Sunday coming, but yep. even Jesus' parables, we kind of think of parables like they're you know, cute little stories to help make his point clearer, but yeah. that's not how Jesus sees his parables, 100%. as we're going to say. Yeah, that's what it's exactly where we go on this this Sunday, and and I guess in that light, um, Jesus gives you some assurance. Though he says that the secret of the kingdom has been given to you. Yeah, uh, to everyone else, it is it is confusing. So it's there is a there is a, especially with a lot of the gospels, there is a, a, a veiledness to them. Mm. But we have the secret of the kingdom. We we know where the story ends, and we can interpret what Jesus says in light of the end. Yeah, and that means for us, the Bible is understandable. It's mm. not that it's opaque and cannot be understood. Yes. We believe that the scripture is clear, like the clarity of scripture is a doctrine we, we hold dear. But the clarity yes. of scripture doesn't mean that all the scriptures are equally clear and are all easy to understand. Yeah, that's right. They're understandable. They're not necessarily easy to understand. Yes. And so there are some passages of the Bible which are going to be harder to understand, and that means they take work. But that's kind of the answer. Like, don't give up and think, oh, you know, you can yep. be tempting to say, just chuck this in the too hard basket. Look, yep. I, 
you know, I gave it a go. Uh, it's too tricky. Yep. No, like we want to honor God and listen to what he has to say. And sometimes that means we're going to have to wrestle and yes. keep wrestling and, and keep working at it. So yep. I hope that you'll, yeah, keep thinking through this passage. And if you yep. have a, a brainwave and God shows you what it means more yep. clearly than I've explained it, come and tell me because I'd love to hear that yeah. too. In terms of some practical tips of helping, like mm. uh, I would say three three things very quickly. Yep. Um, one, read with others. Mm. Uh, we help each other understand stuff. Yep. Two, um, pray and ask God. Uh, maybe it should be the other way around. Uh, and mm-hmm. three, um, get some helps. Um, I found one of the greatest things was when I was first starting to read the Bible was that my a friend of mine gave me this book. I've still got it. It's called The Wilmington's Bible Handbook. It's just got a little comment on every passage of scriptures. It's a thick book, actually. Mm. Um, and I'd read that passage and then I'd read the little comment. And I'd go, ah, that helps me a little bit. And uh, yeah, there are plenty of good helps out there if you are struggling with a particular part. Absolutely, yeah. One last practical thing I'd say, for a book like Matthew, reading it in context is so important. I hope you've seen that even as yeah. we've wrestled with this question. It's not just little isolated sayings that you can work out on their own. You need to read what Matthew says in the flow of the book. So read the chapter before and read the chapter afterwards and yeah, just have a crack at trying to put it together. I think that'll help you to work through it as well. Awesome. Jack, we'll leave it there for today. Thank you for all your work. Very quickly, where are we heading next Sunday coming? I was thinking maybe I could ask you that. You're going to be preaching on Sunday. Ask away, yes. Yeah, what are we looking at when we we come back? (laughs) We (laughs) are looking at Matthew chapter 13. Um, We're looking at the first 23 verses, I think, off the top of my head, uh, which is the parable of the soils and um, looking at the fact that, that, I guess it's answering the question, if if Jesus is who he says he is and and as, as God's Messiah and he speaks this message of the kingdom, why is it that um, more people aren't changed immediately mm. by that word? Why why is there an opposition? Why is there this kind of rejection that we've just been talking about? Yeah. Uh, Jesus explains it to his disciples by means of the, uh, the the parable of the soils. So that's that's what we're looking at. Looking um, forward to it. Yeah, sounds good. Yeah, it, it should be it should be a great part of uh, of Matthew to get stuck into this week. Nice one. Good. All right, we'll leave it there, mate. Thanks for all your work. Thanks for all your questions, everybody. And uh, we'll see you at church on Sunday. See you then. Bye-bye.